Hello and welcome to another episode of A Need to Read, You Absolute Legends. I've got a treat for you today. I'm going to be talking about nihilism with Wendy Seifert. She has just written a book called The Sunny Nihilist. So it's nihilism with a twist. It's usually when you think about nihilism, you think maybe depression or just that like that fleeting moment where you think life is absolutely meaningless and you're crushed by the weight of it. Well, Wendy has taken that, pulled it apart and had a look at how you can use that to your advantage and almost find it quite liberating. She is a Melbourne-based writer and she's written for Vice, she's contributed to The Guardian, British Vogue, plenty of other publications and as well as The Sunny Nihilist, she's got a book coming out very soon called How to Think Like an Activist, which she didn't actually mention on the podcast but I've seen it on her website. So if you're inspired by the part of this conversation where we do talk about activism, then maybe get that book as well because she's a pretty good writer, I'll be honest with you. I've read The Sunny Nihilist and I loved it. So enjoy this conversation but before we get into it of course a need to read as always is sponsored by better help and athletic greens in the interest of keeping this short i'm just going to talk about better help for a minute now being sad is part of life right but sometimes that sadness carries on for a long time and that i don't think is the best part of life and there are definitely ways that you can learn to manage your mind so you have this kind of tranquility with it so you might feel sad but you can deal with it in better ways I've learned this through, of course, reading lots of books, but therapy has helped me to no end, understanding my mind and understanding little techniques and modes of thinking that can just help you get along with life and make it feel a little bit lighter. So if that sounds like it's for you, BetterHelp can match you with a therapist within 48 hours. You can choose that therapist based on their gender. You can choose it based on their specialization. So whatever it is troubling you, there'll be a specialist who'll be able to help you on BetterHelp's website. All you'd have to do to get yourself set up is go to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read you will get 10% off automatically included there and like I say match with a therapist in 48 hours which is rapid now Athletic Greens it's a green shake it helps me not eat vegetables I've been taking it for the last couple years I've been buying it for the last couple years I now get it for free because they sponsor the podcast which is amazing but if you are like me and you don't get in all your sort of daily vegetables because either you can't be bothered or it seems near on impossible Athletic Greens is a great nutritional insurance you can get five free travel packs and a year's supply of vitamin D which is good for your respiratory immune system which i mean i don't know if you've heard but there's there's a little cold going around or maybe a little little cough um over the last couple of years and vitamin d is perfect for your immune system for that very virus that has kind of made the world stand still if you want to get that head to athleticgreens.com forward slash a need to read you get your month supply five free travel packs and a year's supply of vitamin d plus a shaker plus something to hold it in you just get everything in one pack so athleticgreens.com forward slash a need to read but let's get in to the conversation we've got the boring bit out of the way now let's talk about nihilism and change your mind on nihilism so you don't think it's so negative your book the sunny nihilist is a somewhat brave book really because nihilism nihilism gets a bad rap doesn't it yeah it hasn't had the greatest pr campaign in the past 150 years Let's just start with with where it started then, with nihilism, and and I guess what it is to begin with, because people will hear nihilism and they might just think depression. Yeah, to be fair, people's gut reaction is, you know, you can't blame them for it. I mean, nihilism is effectively just saying that life is meaningless, everything is meaningless, the world is chaos. Like, I never judge people too harshly 
for hearing that and kind of stepping back and closing the tab. What turned you to it then? I mean, I tell this story in the book and I chat about it a lot, but I kind of came to Niles and from a backwards point of view rather than being drawn to it expressly for its interest in meaninglessness. I think like a lot of people, I had become pretty entangled with this sort of like cult of meaning that I think we all participate in every day, but maybe we're not all like super conscious of. And that's the sense of you've got to be obsessed with your job. Everything needs a purpose. You need to have a mantra that you wake up every day and say every single thing that you uh, put in your eye calendar in the morning has to be driven by some kind of greater motivation, which again, on the surface, sounds like it makes a lot of sense. But then I think when most of us probably take a breath and look at our lives, we realize that all those mantras aren't actually delivering any kind of like deep lasting happiness. A lot of the time, they're just kind of adding to this laundry list of things that we feel like we're supposed to be doing and feeling and ultimately failing at and then just feeling like a bit shitter than we were when we started. So I was very much tangled up in that mess, very fixated on, for me particularly, and I explored a lot in the book, kind of the concept of how my work was meaningful and my sense of self-worth was very tied to my job. Mm -hmm. uh, that all kind of compounded into what I would say a very classic case of millennial burnout is, which I'm sure everyone's read a million thing pieces on in the past three yeah. years. Uh, and it left me one day walking home from work, like just completely on the verge of a panic attack, like, you know, unsure if I was even going to make it to my heart at all before I collapsed sort of thing. And I was standing on the side of the road, struggling to breathe, completely overwhelmed by my life. I wish I could remember what had actually triggered it, but I honestly think it was something probably so mundane. There's a reason why my brain didn't hold on to it. No, absolutely. And I had this just kind of like ringing thought out of nowhere where I was just like, oh my God, actually, who cares? Like, who cares about any of this one? Like, I'm going to be dead. And like, not only is no one going to remember this, whatever that, I mean, as been proven forgotten issue was, I was like, they're not even going to remember me. And I think that that is the kind of thing that in the moment could have seemed like a really depressing thought. But it just was so liberating and so freeing and it made me feel so much better and immediately like completely reconfigured the way I was not only viewing my life, but maybe viewing myself within my life. And from there, I sort of followed that feeling. And I mean, I kind of got a sense, I knew enough about nihilism from like, you know, literally first year philosophy to understand that I was kind of exploring that idea. And then I went and I started reading Nietzsche and I started looking into some of this kind of Sartre existentials and stuff. And yeah, as you said, what I was really surprised by was a lot of these texts that I'd never really explored myself, but had always assumed were pretty grim. When I sort of approached with this perspective and I read them without a lot of the cultural context they have come to pick up over the past century, they weren't really depressing. They, if anything, as I said, they were liberating and they were kind of thought provoking and it ultimately became like a freeing experience as opposed to a deadening experience. Yeah. It's, um, it's funny because I'm, I'm on a real philosophy hype for the moment. I'm the story of this podcast is I did not try very hard at school and I didn't like reading any books and I just liked watching the films for things in English and just like winging it as much as I could and then found reading I thought oh my god this is amazing and I I did the classic self-help like this is these are the little bits of you that you need to fix to become a better person and I mean like after like 200 odd books you get to a point where you're like 
I thought, what the fuck am I doing this for? Do I like, <laughs> is it, is there that many parts of me that are broken and need fixing? And then now I've kind of turned to philosophy. I struggle to pick anything else up and it's existentialism at the moment that I'm drawn to. So like the links between existentialism are, are they quite strong apart from the fact that existentialism is like you create your meaning every single day. Exactly. I often sort of say to people, if nihilism is like too bitter of a spell, a pill, like, you know, try existentialism. That's kind of the spoonful of sugar that helps it go down. And I think a lot of this, this book, to be fair, and I mean, people have pointed out and I am aware of it, I think does drift into existentialism. Mm. Yeah. I mean, well, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a better title. I feel like the sunny existentialist doesn't, doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't right. rule. And like, it's, it's not the type of book that's like a deep philosophical text. It's not like a, a being in time by Heidegger. I've got on the shelf and it's collecting dust because it's a bit scary. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not that type of, I'm going to confuse the fuck out of you. Good luck. It's like a really accessible introduction to nihilism, which I quite like. Yeah. I was saying something the other day, I feel like while ultimately kind of shitting on self-help, the self-help industry, it's also skates alongside it. Like I want you to get to the end of it and feel like you understand how it relates to the drive you're doing to the shops this afternoon. You don't need to feel like you need to go and do a master's in philosophy to understand what's going on. Yeah. Have, have you had like a, a history in, in philosophy or like a new? I mean, I'm actually pretty similar to you, to be honest. Like, uh, didn't really blow up at school, Yeah, did a bit of philosophy at uni, I think found it actually kind of deadening like I really thought it was going to be like a more I'm sure the experience that you are having with philosophy now and it was a lot of like learning how to structure an argument and I was like how do you make like philosophy feel like maths um but then kind of again it, I think we're probably on a similar path when I was a little bit older probably in my mid to late 20s and starting to realize that a lot of the things and the systems and the structures that I had been told would kind of inform a meaningful life to me, whether again, that's work, religion, a traditional sense of like romantic love. I was like, the wheels are kind of falling off these things. They're not doing what they say on the tin. I'm not getting out of it when I'm supposed to be getting out of it. And I think it, it kind of led me to want to go and be like, okay, well, if all the answers I'm being given aren't really making sense. Can I go see like what informed these answers? Where are people getting these ideas from? And I think that journey, I was obviously I'm a lot more motivated and engaged to actually take part in. Yeah, for sure. I think, like you say, this liberating feeling that nothing really matters does give you quite a solid, like, starting point to just do the shit you like. Um, and I know, like, in the book, you spoke about it in relation to, to God and you, and you spoke about it in relation to love and, and all of these different things. But I just want to touch on something that you said about at the start. I think it's about a sign outside a shop uh, near nearby your house. Um, so would you just mind going into that story for me? Yeah, totally. I actually just moved house, and when I left that shop behind, I was like, "Oh, whoa, what a moment!" Um, <laughs> yeah, so there was a shop near my house that, as I say, I think sells candle making ingredients or like something pretty innocuous, and they used to have a sign that would say, "You know, thirty percent off essential oils or whatever." And at some point, this sign just started like having these sort of like motivational phrases on them. And, you know, they would say like, 
you know, today's the first day of the rest of your life and like each step is climbing a ladder. I don't even remember. They're all just kind of like a word salad. I'm sure yeah. people have magnets on their fridges that say this stuff. And it kind of struck me one day. At first it was just kind of annoying because, you know, everyone loves a bad sandwich board. And then after a while I was just like, wow, this store has kind of recognized that selling this concept of like meaning and purpose and tying like making stuff out of like scented paraffin wax to somehow like being spiritually or like emotionally enlightened is literally more valuable than just like telling the customer what they sell. And I mean, at first it was kind of funny. And then it kind of triggered this thing where I was like, God, meaning is absolutely a currency and a product that we're not like really even just subtly selling anymore. It's not even like this kind of buy someone a diamond ring and you'll have true love. Like we are just blanketing it onto everything. And at the time I was working in sort of a marketing adjacent field and it's like anything once you see it once. You see it everywhere. Second, you realize everyone drives a Red Bull kind of thing. And I kind of started seeing it at my work where we used to sell, you know, what's tell a soft drink and would be like, the soft drink's the best. It's fun, whatever. Like, here's a bouncy castle. And then it became like, we're selling the soft drink. This soft drink is going to unlock the way that you always thought you would feel as an adult somehow. And it's going to like, you know, it's going to make you like, it's going to bring everything together. And I give this example of, I say it's a friend in the book. It's actually someone who ended up becoming my partner. But I think we were talking about selling ice creams one day and like all these things this ice cream kind of represented. And he was just like, like, it's just an ice cream. Like, just let an ice cream be an ice cream. And I feel like now whenever I see sort of like something vacuously like meaningful, I'm just like, just let an ice cream be an ice cream. Like, it's enough. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a shame that people don't seem to be able to get by very well in the world anymore without doing that, without applying meaning every, to everything. And you have like these sales gurus who are like, you need to tell everyone what your after effect is. Like, what do people feel after they have had a, like a conversation with you or, or use your product? And I hate it. I hate trying to sell myself. I hate trying to market myself. Somehow or other, I've managed to get to where I am by saying like, Hey guys, like my podcast is is all right. There's loads that are better than it, surely, but it's okay. And maybe, maybe you'll like it. And, and people just aren't drawn to it. And it then makes you yeah. feel bad for not buying into it yourself. And it makes you wonder like, maybe I'm actually just, just a miserable cunt. <laughs> I could speak trying to market a book about nihilism has definitely been a bit of a tap dance. Like I think everyone who writes on a comment who thinks they're the first person who says, Is, isn't there something like, like anti-nihilistic about writing a book? And it's like, well, yeah, 100% right. Yeah. So I do understand. But it's funny. It's like, it's such a double-edged sword because, you know, I go after meaning and purpose pretty hard in the book, obviously. Mm. But I'm also careful to say, listen, like the quest for meaning is like very noble. Like the idea that you want to know where you exist in the world, why you exist. I mean, I'm not going to roll my eyes at that. Like that has, is not only a very human instinct to ask that, but I mean, it has literally driven civilization since the dawn of time. It's why we crawled out of the swamp kind of thing. The kind of issue with me is those big questions, you know, they're big for a reason. They take a lifetime to answer. People spend their whole lives meditating in monasteries, trying to like untangle these things. I think where that kind of like sandwich board 
or like ice cream ad comes in is marketers and I mean, it's not all marketing, but I think a lot of people who hold sort of power over us have realized that if you can kind of produce a feeling of a shortcut to that feeling, mm. then you can get a, a much more enthusiastic uptake than asking someone to, yeah, spend a, spend 10 years doing what you did, which is reading a thousand years of philosophy. But this kind of bummer is that that shortcut is really much less about asking what's it all about? What are we all doing here? What is like the point of this? And more being, what am I about? How does this relate directly back to me? It is, can become, I would say, a pretty easy conduit to dress up what is effectively self-obsessive behavior and thought as something yeah. more elevated. And I mean, that has become like the major critique of Maybe not the self-help industry, uh, maybe the self-help industry, but I mean, it's something that people like level against, you know, like wellness a lot, that yeah. making a cup of tea that takes 25 minutes in the morning is somehow being presented as like a ritualistic, uh, like anti-capitalist act sort of thing where it's like, I mean, if you want to make that, it's lovely, but don't pretend that you're sort of doing something inherently good for humanity. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It just feeds to the ugliest parts of our nature, doesn't it? It feeds this like this seed of nihilism, um, not nihilism, sorry, like narcissism. And it's actually weird. I, I saw like Aristotle had said that like any character in, in a, any kind of play, book, whatever you want to call it, should have like a seed of nihilism or a seed of ambition. And the seed of nihilism, people don't want to pull on. Because obviously the the connotations that we've spoken about, like the depression, the, the like it seems like a Debbie Downer type of thing to be into. But this ambition, what's more sexy than like finding what your purpose is in this world? And and what is what is, like you say, more noble than finding out what you're meant to offer? And the reality of it is, and I'm I'm so on your side here, but like you get to make that up. Like it doesn't it doesn't actually exist. There is no, there is no set rules here. Um, so that, that that's an, another reason why I'm quite, quite drawn to the nihilism side of thing, because I, I am getting a little bit upset about how self-obsessed everyone is. It's, I know, and it, that, like, I, love that, to see. I mean, I love that Aristotle, um, kind of dichotomy that's presented because as you, like, as you said, it makes sense. And like one of those paths looks like it's darkness and one of it looks like it leads to light. But I think when you really like explore both those ideas with an open mind and you look for examples of them in action around us, that if you don't fall into like a pit of poison, the idea that you matter shockingly less than you might think can lead to, you know, an ex exploration of sort of like selflessness and well, where do I spend my time and my money and my energy if I am not the center of my own universe? Yeah. Whereas like, I personally think that quest for the quest for sort of like, you know, as the kids say, like main character energy or to center yourself yeah. at the, the heart of everything. Again, in theory, it seems like it's really exciting and really lovely, but the kind of impact to reroute the whole world to you, I would say can be as toxic and destructive as the way we think about nihilism. And I mean, you see this in kind of like, I mean, probably the laziest examples you see in politics all the time, where it's every single situation that it happens or unfolds, you cannot relate to it or care about it unless it relates directly to you. 
Yeah. And I mean, I explore kind of conspiracy theories a little bit in the book and sort of QAnon and a lot of these kind of really, really wild ideas that are kind of mm. becoming part of the mainstream now. And I think a lot of them sort of people say, oh, like these are such nihilistic indiv individuals acting in like these harmful ways. But the reality is these are people who are like bending the fabric of literal reality to put themselves at the center of it, to say that they are like the protectors against some like inherent nature. And to me, that is kind of the absolutely like cuckoo extension of that sort of like ambitious main character I'm the center of the world thinking it's like when you will literally believe in any delusion if it answers your inherent quest for being like but, okay but how am I central to the story whereas in that when you follow it to that extreme I think me standing on the side of the road saying my life doesn't matter it actually feels a little bit healthier yeah I think so I think not storming the capitol building and and just staying in Australia is quite quite a good yeah I don't want to call myself a hero but you know <laughs> hey <but> heroes <laughs> and just have existential crises on the side it's of true the I think the bar is pretty low if you don't believe in lizard people either. <laughs> yeah you don't believe in lizard people I know that's what they can push us um so this this search for meaning that we have we can kind of blame Nietzsche for that right like we he he was the one that said that God is dead so he, we can kind of blame now for the fact that <laughs> people were trying to like manifest themselves into the center of the universe and that they believe everything happens, um, for a reason for them and, and ignore the like tragic human suffering that, that goes on in the world. Um, I just did a podcast on, on the existentialist cafe and, and I was talking in there about Something that Jean-Paul Sartre said, that's like, if something is untrue for the least favored, then it, it has to be untrue. And this is my problem that I have with like people who want to manifest stuff or say that everything manifests for them. It's like, if you are chosen by the universe, then you at some level must be better than the man in Africa who's just had to watch his son rape his daughter and then kill her and then kill him. And it's like, the extent of human suffering is, is incomprehensible in the world. And for people to think that they get chosen by the universe to have this amazing, beautiful life, they get to manifest any house they want or partner. It just seems a bit like sociopathic. It's, it's bizarre. I mean, it's also like a complete shortcut to not have to interrogate like the systems of like pri privilege and capitalism and wealth and yeah. colonialism that have led to me sitting here drinking a five dollar cup of coffee i don't have to say like you know how many fingerprints are in this cup and how many people were exploited for me to get it i can just be like well i'm special so i can have this special little thing yeah yeah it's a shame um have you always been because i i haven't always been in touch with knowing that me as a white cis male guy extremely privileged probably top of, the <laughs> of, of privilege like if it if I had maybe like an extra million in the bank, like maybe I'd have a full stamped card to the patriarchy. Um, <laughs> have, have you always been a good person, basically? <laughs> I mean, I think if you asked me at any point in my life, I probably would tell you I was a good person. But if I reflected back on it 10 months later, I'd probably give a different answer. Um, I mean, I'm the same. Like, you know, I'm a straight, cis, white middle-class woman like I feel like we kind of are drinking from the same uh kool-aid 
as each other? I would say like a lot of people, I think over the past decade or so, I think this journey has become a lot clearer. I think I would hope that I have kind of like witnessed global events, you know, across my adult life and have rather than feeling tapped by them, like tried to reflect on my own role within them. I think everyone kind of like comes to these issues with, you know, everyone has baggage that they carry and has things that they struggle with. I think a lot of women come to this kind of work feeling disenfranchised as women and then hopefully, if they don't become absolute like turfs, realise that kind of embeds them with a level of empathy, which they can then look at, you know, other women having different experiences and understand how they can relate and also compound their pain. One thing I would say, um, probably in terms of not why I might be more aware of this than these people, than other people, but maybe more sensitive to it. I did grow up with quite a lot of like financial hardship, which I think embedded in me quite a significant, uh, understanding of sort of like class and privilege from a young age, which I think some of those invisible systems that I write about in the book were very visible to me because I sort of saw how like the cards were very stacked against my family and were stacked against people like me and around me. Um, but I mean, I think it's this classic story and I mean, it's something that I marvel at at the news every day. I think when you feel like that and you feel attacked or you feel sort of disenfranchised in any way, you sort of have two choices. And one is to say, the world's against me, so I need to protect my space. I can't let anyone come for like the few crumbs that I have. Mm. Or you can kind of step back and say, okay, things are unfair for me. A, again, can this level of empathy maybe open me up to understand experiences that are different to mine and this feeling of sort of pain and fear can be a ribbon into someone else's experience. Uh, But also I would say what I hope people do, whether they read my book or not, is to really step back and say, well, who are actually the bad actors against me? Because I think so often they're not the people in our immediate circle we turn to. It's again, doing that work to say, what are the systems of power that probably existed for 500 years that have actually constructed this reality that is sort of telling me that I am worth less than someone who lives in a suburb, you know, 30 minutes away. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's an interesting topic. And I, and I think thinking about it makes people uncomfortable. I, I think looking at your life and saying like, yeah, there were some parts of this that were unfair and there were some parts of this that were really unfair, but to my benefit, um, that, that have got me to where I am. It's, it's, it's not a comfortable thing to come to terms with because we're the heroes of our own story. And if we're hell bent on having meaning, like where you, you want it to have been toughest for you. you, you Yeah. I think that a lot when I, you know, when I try and find empathy for people I disagree with or who make me upset and angry. I mean, I do think that there are bad actors in the world who just want to, who are out for themselves and don't care about other people. But I do think a lot of harm it's done from people just really, really trying to, to twist the, any, their existence in any way so that they can present themselves as like not being a villain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so how would being a nihilist come into this to, to being able to care for others? Yeah. So something that I 
find really kind of remarkable about thinking about this way is nihilism makes things feel really big and really small. So obviously considering this answer to the universe and the void is huge. But then also I think when you start realizing that there is no kind of huge payoff at all, all you have is like this one moment, a lot of things can also feel more manageable. And I think that exists in a personal sense in terms of it helps you sort of, I mean, do a lot of the work that these self-help books are telling you to do, which is sort of centering yourself in the present, being mindful, asking, well, if I'm chasing these ideas of like success and happiness and comfort and safety, how do I take them out of the abstract? And I can ask myself today, what are the things I can do to access that? But then, I mean, that's obviously in a very internal space. But I think the other thing is, as you've kind of spoken about really eloquently, when you stop kind of participating in these ideas of like, I deserve certain things, certain things are like destined for me. This is the way the world exists because there is inherent meaning in the world. And if it's fair for some people and it's unfair for others, like, Mm. what are you going to do? That's just like reality. I think it gives you more space to kind of think like, well, what do I want reality to look like? And how can I sort of actually construct that in my own way? And how can I break away from these systems that I've been told are inherently true and maybe start to do that work to being like, well, what kind of systems do I want them to look like? But also again, when you decenter yourself from your life and you stop thinking like, how does this serve me the best? The natural kind of pendulum response to that is to look beyond yourself and say, well, how is this actually affecting people more widely than myself? And I mean, the, like the clearest example of that in a generational sense, I think is for people, I mean, I'm 34, but I mean, I think people younger than me as well, kind of looking at a lot of the systems and industries and kind of marketplaces that we have been told, you know, if you join these, you can be rich, you can be powerful, you can be successful. And accepting like they are literally burning the planet alive and are saying, well, I want to step out of these kind of pathways that maybe will have me on track to earn a six-figure salary and have two cars and like three bathrooms in my house. Yeah, six figures. And I'm instead going to make choices that do not serve me in the short term, but are actually better for the planet because it doesn't really matter if I can buy out-of-season tomatoes. What actually matters is that like, the is principle in yeah. hundred years time. Yeah, it's um, that's that's another thing I think people like to avoid is is acknowledging like what's actually happening to the planet. And I'm I'm yet to do any in depth reading on it. And I, I I'm I'm very much of a mind that like I I get my information from books nowadays. I'm like I'm I'm so fed up of getting it from from social media because you just you never really know what to trust. And I know that books are super super biased as well and you have to kind of balance it out but like what what do nihilists do for the planet what like what's the what's what's the point i, I guess well this is the thing that like my nihilism i think the two probably then not not just in yeah it's true i mean that my kind of nihilism very much actually intersects really closely with my environmentalism and i would say other than talking about things like this, the biggest force in my life is I am very involved in environmentalism and very concerned and motivated to do something about climate change. Um, it is probably yet yeah, the biggest thing in my life as it should be with everyone because it affects us all. 
And again, I think for me, it came back to this idea of this thought process of saying, okay, well, if I don't matter and yes, nothing matters and we are eventually going to like, you know, shuffle off this rock in the middle of space. But like, there is a reality that like, you still have to get out of bed tomorrow and like other people will still exist in a hundred years time. Like we can, you cannot live and eat and like function completely in a thought experiment. We still have to tie these ideas back to like, who's going to take out the garbage on Wednesday night. Yeah. So as I said, for me, it kind of becomes, yes, you don't matter, but, and you no one will remember you and your life is just like a snapshot in the existence of time. But what are the things that are going to exist maybe for a little bit longer? So when you are thinking like, well, how am I going to spend my time and how am I going to, as you say, like maybe define your own sense of meaning or create your own systems of thought, how can I put that energy into something that does feel maybe more generally constructive? And I think that kind of thinking can lead you to a lot of different places. Some people might be like, I really want to make sure my neighborhood is safe and happy. I really want to make sure people around me can afford to like go to the doctor. I want to make sure that the library stays open. And as I said, for me, it is this idea of protecting the planet. The other thing is as well as I, I talk a lot about activism and climate work with people. And I was chatting to someone about this on a podcast the other day and we were saying, I think often when we think about climate change and activism, Again, it can feel really massive and it's this idea of like, I have sort of had this tense conversation with someone about this a little while ago, actually, you know, if I'm not going to be the one that invents carbon capture technology, like I'm not going to save the day, like I can't make a difference in like that scale, then like what's the fucking point of any of it? To me, again, that's kind of like that toxic main character energy where it's yeah. like, if I can't change it, then why do anything? Which to me just feels like it's not even a philosophical question. It just kind of seems like from an evolutionary point of view, doesn't make sense. Yeah. Whereas if we're really stepping back and we're saying, I think a lot of this book is kind of asking this question of a lot of these big answers and questions are redundant and they take us away from the ability to, you know, say, well, what actually brings me pleasure right now? What actually matters to me? What today is something that's going to be important, even if no one witnesses it or talks about it or remembers it in a century? I mean, for me personally, a lot of that does come back to nature. It comes back to the clean room in my house that I swim in. It comes back to the little garden I'm trying to plant. The, I don't know if you can hear it, but the very raucous Australian parrots yeah. that live in my front very, yard. Very just. That just... I'll tell you what Australian birds are as obnoxious as the rest of the Australians. <laughs> and I mean, for me, like that very small personal connection to environment, environmentalism, fighting for, you know, the health of your own backyard, I think it often gets really lost in these big questions. It doesn't have to be about saving the world. It can be about saving something precious near the, you that you love, which I think personally is much more motivating. Yeah. I like that way of looking at it, that it's, it's almost like an arrogance that stops people from from participating in stuff that's good for the planet. Like it's a, if I'm not going to be the one who sends people to Mars or the one who like, I don't know, like the carbon capture stuff, if, if I'm not going to be the main guy, that beautiful scientist who just like captures the hearts of the world and, and saves the world, then what's the fucking point? Why am I going to recycle my mushroom box? And, yeah, exactly. And I mean, this is an environmental podcast, but like the reality is if everyone does actually look after their own, you know, there's this idea of 
if everyone takes care of their neighbor, then you don't need these like huge, like systems coming in. I mean, that's kind of very individualistic and has a lot of issues embedded with itself. But I think people kind of think, well, I have no power. I'm not Elon Musk. What am I going to do? There, again, this is not going to, I'm not here to give like an environmental tech. Hey, no, 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 you go for it. But, you know, if you do take your money out of a bank that invests in fossil fuel or your superannuation fund doesn't back coal mines or you vote for a politician with like climate positive agenda, if 20 million people do these things, you do change the world. Like it's a classic, you see, yeah, it's carrying a piece of pizza. Like, yeah. and I think that, again, talking about this like larger theme of like being wary of these powers that be. Don't forget that a lot of this marketing and messaging and kind of conversation we have that like focuses on empowering the self and like putting you as the center of the whole universe. It's not only there to make you become more self-obsessed, it is also disempowering in a way that it's disconnecting you from your neighbor. So you don't actually think about how powerful you are when you start thinking collectively. Yeah, I think, well... The most connected generation ever is actually the least connected ever. And this, like, I think people fall prey to this, like, cruel optimism of that they think it's all, all on them, but we do at some point have to come together. And I'm not talking about this in like a Marxist point of view, but like, uh, just come together and save these corporations like, Hey, we're not going to give you any money anymore. Cause we kind of realized that you're fucking idiots and, and you're ruining things for us and, and our children and the future. So just, just for a moment, we're going to give you no money until you sort your shit out. And I guess that's, that's like the power that we have. Um, yeah, hundred percent. I would say if someone does the right thing for the wrong reason, they're still doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. In, in, uh, would you give an example of that? Like, uh, I mean, I mean, that's the. The, what do they call it? A boycott, which is what you're talking about, which is, yeah. you know, removing your money from people. If everyone switches to electric in their homes or, you know, I mean, I don't really like when people talk about buying EVs. I mean, electric vehicles is a solution all the time because they're, it's not something that everyone can afford. But, you know, if you change the capitalistic drive and the market drive for a product and you make it not profitable for these companies to behave in this way, it doesn't matter if they're divesting from coal because they look into the eyes of the children and they, you know, weep or because they're like, their board is freaking out that the stock is crashing and they have to invest in something that has a future. Yeah. Have you got any good book recommendations on this topic? Um, there's this really good book that is by an Australian author who's, they might always blank out in podcasts. I'm just going to Google it. But Rebecca Huntley's How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference. And she is this really, really amazing woman who I admire very much. And I would say I just blanked on her name because it's very early in the morning yeah. Um, And she kind of talks about climate change in this really interesting way where I think most people understand what's at stake. Like you don't need to read the whole IPCC report to be able to like participate in this. And I think sometimes this like idea of that you have to be like this perfect intellectual to join these conversations it's actually really destructive but she talks a lot about that theme of kind of trying to bring these ideas back into people's lives and how to make people care and feel empowered and relate directly to these like huge issues 
in a way that isn't just terrifying and overwhelming and makes you want to like put your doona over your head. And I mean, a lot of my own thinking has been informed by her writing. And she has these really interesting studies of like local groups that have made massive differences. And it's not, again, by not everyone's going to be Greta Thunberg. It's by saving a wetland or protecting like an endangered species in their neighborhood. And it's very much this like bipartisan approach to helping people like understand what they value and want to protect and feel connected to in their own lives and how to sort of work with other people who might vote differently to them, might eat something different to breakfast for breakfast every morning. But being able to kind of, as you said, like connect on this like human level and not be kind of divided by all these like ideas of identity. Um, and to me, it's like, it's a really interesting read, but it's also a really practical read that you kind of get to the end of it and you sort of feel like, I know what I want to do tomorrow. You're not like, well, I understand the issue and I still feel totally under, like overwhelmed. Yeah. I think a lot, a lot of people do feel overwhelmed and they ironically feel quite nihilistic about the whole thing and then, and then just yeah. throw the baby out with the bathwater. And exactly. I'd read somewhere or, or heard somewhere, like one of the best things we could ever do for the planet is like to pull out as many people as we can out of poverty so that. I think over like five grand a year worldwide, this is not in like the, the like weird countries, Western industrialized, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's like over five grand and they'll then start caring about the environment. And I guess it's pretty hard to care about the environment when like you have to fill up water bottles and then if they, like you just throw them in the sea because well, like you need to, you can't. Oh, I mean, I know even in Australia, our own prime minister, every time someone says like, when is Australia going to stop exporting coal? He sort of says, well, you know, when India, you know, stops burning it, we'll stop giving it to them. And I'm just like, mate, if I was someone in India, I mean, obviously India is a huge country with people existing in many socioeconomic different like situations. Pretty solid class or caste system in India. I don't know what what they call it, but like it's very rigid. Class and caste, yeah, can exist. I, I, I suppose together and separately, but I'm just like, I don't really know if it's like the guy who was just trying to like put food on his table and keep his lights on, if it's really fair to ask him to be interrogating these ideas. Whereas me, who has two hours a day to watch old episodes of Real Housewives in New York, like maybe all that privilege gives me some responsibility that I need to like write to my local member of parliament and like ask them to subsidize solar panels. Yeah. After you caught up with your as well as we I mean, I can do two things at once. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I never thought about that. Maybe I'll give it a go. Um, so we've, we've obviously pivoted essentially from, from nihilism. I tried to sneak in there, but that wasn't what that conversation was about. Um, but you did. I've always got time to talk about blood. Yeah, we've, um, you, you spoke about astrology and like these new religions that people are attaching to. And, and I kind of, mentioned it earlier it it seems that your your thing is is climate change do you still stand by everything that you wrote in the book because i personally don't stand by ideas that i thought up last week and i know that you started writing this like pre-pandemic and 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 a lot has changed so do you feel like everything you've written in the book still feels true to you that's a really good question um, and when I was writing the book, to be honest, like the terrifying thought in the back of your head is what if I get to the end of this and I'm a different person? I mean, the process of writing a book is very transformative in itself. Yeah. Um, I would actually say largely yes. Like, and not to just sound like I'm on a press 
campaign, but I think about this book and the ideas in this book every day and not just in a way of like, this is part of my job now. Yeah. But like when I do feel overwhelmed, I do pause and I tell myself that I don't matter. I do when I start getting like entangled with sort of like these stress triggers, try and ask myself to identify like the systems of power that are constructed that make me feel this way. I do really try and kind of, again, often I'm a, I mean, I'm in a pretty anxious person like anyone. I, mm. you know, you have these feelings when you feel yourself spiraling. I do say like, why do I believe these things? Where do these ideas come from? Is this a, a value that I've kind of come to myself or is it one that I've absorbed from someone else? I mean, if anything, I think like, you know, all books date, like if you read it now, I actually went and I had to update a few little things recently for a paperback version. And I mean, it was pretty grim going through and having to change all the COVID numbers and like casualty rates. But other than things that, you know, I could think back on dinners I cooked 10 years ago and think about how I could have made it better. You're always learning and changing. I do stand by the fundamental message of the book. Sadly, I think some of maybe the more optimistic stuff about how I thought COVID might rewire society. I don't think it hasn't come true. I think on an individual way, that's the way it's rewired, the way we think about ourselves in relation to the world has very much has. And I often think like when we see, you know, these sweeping trends, like this great resignation or people quitting their jobs or um, people kind of like really, really change, like leaving cities and really changing the way they live. I think a lot of those ideas were present in the book before they started like actually manifesting in people's lives. Um, but maybe some of my more sweeping, like socialist worldwide reforms haven't quite come to the table as quickly as I would have liked, but there's still time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, there's still hope. Um, I find like when I have, have these, like, I, I think I'm genetically predisposed to being quite an, an anxious person and I do a lot to manage it if I don't shit hits the fan and I, I'm assuming that's kind of like similar with yourself and there'll be people listening who for some reason relate to me and and that might well be one of the reasons so if if they were to get to a point that they're having an existential crisis or they're questioning their like meaning in life I personally like to do this like cosmic insignificance therapy have you heard of it that sounds very interesting though you basically just think about how old planet is and then you think about the amount of time that we like you condense it to a 24-hour clock you think that one millisecond ago it was 1963 the kenyan independence uhuru happened and that was what for 60 years ago but that was one one millisecond to to midnight and then you just think well, I don't fucking matter, really, in the grand scheme of things. Like, if dinosaurs were only really an hour ago on on that clock, so anything I do can't really matter too much. And like, like I saw a great meme the other day. It was like a, a big picture of the expansive universe. And it was like you are here crying in the shower before work. And and I quite like to think of that. But what what would be your thought process of of really like putting it into context? I mean, I honestly love that. And would second that. I think that's a really great. I've got, I've got some good recommendations for you. I, I can't help but think through conversations with books I want to recommend someone. So I'll, I'll go through them at the end, actually, and, and condense. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Um, 
honestly, really similar. Some, something I do, which I think is probably kind of getting to the same point is, I mean, it is effectively a form of mindfulness. And a lot of this stuff, you know, people have read the book and been like, oh, it reminds me of Buddhism or it reminds me of Taoism. And I'm like, we're all coming to the same good idea. Go east. Go east. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, lots of, there are many ways to have a good idea. Um, but something I do when I feel overwhelmed is I just try and remind myself that, yeah, even like time is a concept that we have constructed to make our lives feel less chaotic. And I'm like, yesterday doesn't exist anymore. Anything stupid I did that doesn't exist. It is literally only a memory that I have put a construction around to call it yesterday. So I can kind of like my brain doesn't explode. Tomorrow doesn't exist. It's only a projection of ideas that I'm kind of like maybe obsessing over that is effectively just a fantasy. So the only thing that is really real to me in this exact moment is the presence. It's me at my desk, looking at my notes, chatting to you again, drinking this cup of coffee. And then A, it makes me feel more centered because I'm like, this is the only thing that I really need to give my attention to right now. This is the only thing that I know. I know, like, you know, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. This is the only thing that I know is really true. But then also it helps me say, okay, well then right now, what are the things that I need to feel happy, to feel safe, that I can control? If today is the only day that I know really exists, how do I want to spend today? I mean, that doesn't mean like flipping off my balls and getting on a plane to Paris, but quite often it means, you know, I would love to just go for a walk and get an ice cream, but I think I can't because like, I've got so many things to do and like, what if I don't finish my to-do list? But you're being so constrained by this idea of what you think you might feel like tomorrow if you don't do it. And I, it makes me, it makes things a lot easier for me to just slow down and be like, just get up and like, get that cornetto out of the fridge and go in the backyard for like 10 minutes. It's like, okay. yeah. Or an hour. <laughs> yeah. I think the idea of like, you have stain tomorrow sometimes can kind of rob you of like the reality of right now sometimes. I really like that. I, I like the fact that it actually doesn't exist because... Like our memories are pretty shit, right? If they tricks on us yesterday, could maybe have never happened. We- I know. Whenever I do something stupid, I tell myself that yesterday doesn't actually exist. <laughs> um, and then one one final question. How have you found this like nihilist concept in terms of communicating with people? Because I, I imagine it, it helps quite a bit in terms of having conversations that might seemingly be quite difficult. I mean, I really thought about it like that. I suppose in that way that it probably raises a bit of fear and shame about things that have gone in the past because I hopefully spend a little bit less time obsessing over dumb things I've said. I would say, again, it's probably just more of a general experience of mindfulness of that idea of all you have today, how do you want to spend today? What do you want to do with your time? I think, I mean, this combined with the pandemic, um, combined with being pregnant, which I mean, is a whole nother nihilistic conversation. Um, I think it does make you think about time and experience differently. So maybe the time and energy I give to people is different. Like, I think we all have these relationships that we partake in and often they're friendships. And the thing, the primary thing you're getting out of it probably isn't like joy and comfort and pleasure. You might be doing it because there's someone you think you have to have in your life or like the kind of engagement you're supposed to be having or like you know, I mean, I love talking to my mom on the phone, but I know a lot of people call their parents and it stresses them out because they just feel like they have this construct of what a good child looks like. Yeah. 
And I think maybe it's, yeah, maybe it's more that less about communication, but more where I put the energy in that time. So when I actually am communicating with someone, I know that I really want to be there because like I've given them my attention wholeheartedly and then it makes it a little bit easier to be present. Yeah, that's nice. I guess it just makes it all the more meaningful, even though it's obviously meaningless. I know. God, it's so difficult. It's even after like years after writing this book, it's hard to not accidentally use the M word when talking about it. It is not even at all meaningful, but it is enjoyable. Exactly. Um, so write the books that I'd like to recommend you before, before we do completely wrap this up. Oliver Berkman's 4,000 weeks is about time and how we use it. And his, I've, I've chatted to him for the podcast, his, his like philosophical influences he said was Seneca the Stoic which is is good we, we like Seneca I love the Stoic it was my like first like proper original text and it's quite an easy read compared to other philosophies but it, uh, it was great Heidegger and um, obviously the phenomenologist the existentialist Nazi <laughs> annoyingly um and I think it was like Carl Jung or something in the book, he speaks of cosmic insignificance therapy. All of his books, The Antidote, Help, and 4,000 Weeks, I've absolutely loved. I think you really like them as well. And also, um, Will Storr's Selfie. It's about how the West became self-obsessed. Oh, I've heard of this one. Is this kind of recent? Uh, no, I think it came out in 2017. He, he's written a few books after it. This yeah, it was the one that popped up in my feed somewhere. Um, I mean, it might have been me today. I think I did. To put it down. <laughs> yeah. it, it could True. well have been me um but what you spoke about about the like how self-obsessed with the arc he really like dives into exactly why that is the case and like goes right back throughout history uh, like uh, there was a guy in the early 80s um john basconcellos who was the governor of california and he is the reason that the world is obsessed with self-esteem and it was not based off any fact like he, he kind of like manipulated evidence in a study to say that self-esteem was super important for the safety of society and, and like people's well-being when really it doesn't actually matter. Like me personally, my self-esteem is probably not at the point that other people would want me to have my self-esteem at. But I'm so accepting of that fact and, and reading that book, becoming just completely at peace with my like lower than average self-esteem completely transformed my life. But it also helps you understand why other people are completely self-obsessed. And you're like, oh my God, please read Selfie and change your fucking life. <laughs> yeah, that sounds amazing. I mean, I think that this kind of like burgeoning awareness of like toxic positivity is really interesting. And it's kind of in that space too. This idea of just like, you can do it, girl. And it's like, that actually just makes me feel 10,000 times worse. And now I feel gross that I can't shake off my, you know, ancestral trauma. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you did speak about in that, that in the book. So for people listening, like there is a bit of toxic positivity bashing, bashing in there. But um, you care about the environment. I often tell people I don't care where they get their books, but where would you like people to get your book um, if, you, if you had a choice? I mean, obviously, ebooks and Audible are always great if you want to save on shipping and save some trees. I personally am a physical book person. I've My vibe is always check your local bookshop, uh, check your library maybe before you go to your huge online retailers. But also, you know, you're supporting me if you buy a book from any book from anywhere. So yeah. 
So if your local bookshop or your library can get it in first, and if they can't, I'll give you a pass. Yeah. And just wherever's available to you. I'm also always super conscious that it's like people have different like financial constrictions and yeah. sometimes the $15 difference of buying something from a cute local store isn't maybe something that's on your to-do list this week. Yeah. They make it, they make it pretty difficult for us, don't they? These Jeff Bezos. <laughs> I didn't actually realize this, but when you borrow stuff from the library and, or when you ask a library to order something in for you or to buy something for you, um, authors actually get commissions from that. Oh, really? So you're supporting authors and you're supporting libraries. Oh, that's, that's the way it works in Australia. I'm a big supporter of local libraries. I'm always telling people to get out them and check it, check it out. I've kind of got my own, but very recently I've moved over to Kindle and I just can't seem to, I, I, you read your book. <laughs> I've got to say, I've got a Kindle, but then if I like it, I just go out and buy it anyway. So I was a bit like, goes in the book. I just moved house and I, by the time I actually unpacked all these books, I was like, maybe I need a bit of a new system. Whether even that's just like giving some of these away. I was like, finally, I'm starting to understand my boyfriend's point that there are maybe too many books in the house. Never, never too many. But at least then you get rid of the shit ones. The ones you can look at that you read like five years ago, like, wow, I would never, ever read that ever again in my whole entire life. So someone else. Yeah, I got to say, sadly, that Irish poetry anthology from year 10 English probably didn't (laughs) move through 15 shit houses with me. Yeah, for sure. Um, Well, thank you very much. Where can people find you should they wish to find you? Uh, so you can go to Wendy Seifert, W-E-N-D-Y-S-Y-F-R-E-T.com, where sort of all my articles, all my news, everything is. Or you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm just Wendy Wins, so W-E-N-D-W-E-N-D-S, um, everywhere there. Okay. And, you know, pretty active there. I do my part. Oh, well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for the chat. It was lovely. Well, she's not bloody wrong, is she? That was a pretty lovely chat. I really enjoyed it. I'm I'm so obsessed with philosophy at the moment, so it was lovely to be able to chat to someone who is looking at a line of philosophy that not many people like to look at. If you yourself are interested in it, of course, you can get that book from wherever you get your books from and of Wendy's other book as well, How to Think Like an Activist. All of the information about Wendy, uh, her website, her Twitter, her Instagram, it's all in the description of the episode. There's a couple of other things in the description of the episode as well, including sign up to my email list. If you want to keep up to date with what's coming up, of course, just subscribe to this on whatever, you know, platform, I think they call it, whatever platform you're on right now. Subscribe, like give us a review if you want to, you know, it really helps. And sign up to the email list. Other stuff, sponsors, course in there. Um, that's it. You're all absolute legends. I'll be back soon with some top quality content. Love you, bye.